1: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Jack Ramsey's Danny Morang, Brandon Sprague, and this time we are joined by Corey Jez of the Portland Trailblazers, the on-air analytics guy, as he's so affectionately known as now. Uh, Corey, thank you for taking time to join us, man. We really appreciate it. I wanted to bring you on because um, I'm a giant nerd, uh, as Chauncey Billups called me out in the uh, pregame press conference. Oh, yeah, I remember <laughs> that one. Yeah, that great. You threw
2: synergy uh, numbers at him, though, right? Yeah, I, just,
1: I threw some just some some light tracking stuff uh, as it pertained to uh, transition uh, defense and after timeout defense. Uh, two things: one thing they struggled in, and one thing that they were doing quite well. And the a reason I wanted to bring that up right away is I wanted you to come on not only to explain your role and kind of how you got here because it's it's an interesting path. I always find the path to an- analytics and sports they're so varied across the yes. board across the nba people coming from the the actual analytics math driven spectrum you get guys like kirk goldsberry who came from a, a geospatial tracking world there's people who come from uh, true mathematics worlds where you're talking about uh, geotagging and geotracking or physics uh, or those that come from the business world you and i both come from different versions of the business world uh if i remember correctly you were a full stack or worked with full stack development uh yeah, along yeah i've done lines. a little bit of
2: done a little bit of everything but you know yeah we'll get into it
1: yeah and i worked as a business analyst you know on the back side of you know erp installations and things of that nature there's always there's so many of these different paths in 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 business and, and and on the education side that ultimately lead down these analytics paths and what it ultimately ends up meaning uh so for me i guess the first thing is again how, what is your path how did you get here and, and kind of Uh, the maturation into being the on-air analytics guy for the Blazers.
2: Yeah. So, well, thanks guys for having me on. Um, Really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun through 10 games now being part of Rip City and, and, you know, obviously I, I, I've been intimately familiar with the team from other roles I've had in the NBA, but getting to know also the community around the team has been, been awesome. And that's, that's been a part of, of this, that I don't know. I thought too much about, coming into it, but not something I had previously in a front office. So it's been, it's been one of the, the cooler parts of it, but yeah, so my path, everyone's path is different. And I think to sum it up succinctly, the reason why that is, especially as sports analytics, and I will actually probably broaden that when I talk about it here to sports technology or sports information, mm-hmm. because analytics is a little, is a little more narrow if you try to define it, but those things by definition are interdisciplinary. I have a master's degree in analytics and it was an interdisciplinary major. It had college of business, college of, you know, operations research and college of computer science or whatever those departments were called in mm-hmm. Georgia Tech. There is, you know, there's computer science, there's economics, there's operations research, there's all these things that come into like the science of decision making, if you're trying to sum it up into a single kind of phrase. Um, and so my path um, I graduated from Virginia Tech 2011 undergrad in economics had never written a line of code in my life when I graduated college, except for like Excel macros. And then, um, first job out of school learned SQL database programming language ubiquitous in, in kind of the technology world mm-hmm. and three or four years consulting mid Atlantic, kind of your typical 24 year old boutique consulting type thing. Uh, you know, got my like Delta platinum status at 24 and, <laughs> you know, never looked back. Right. Um, but that's about the time Moneyball came out, and mm-hmm. I, it's really hard for me to tell this story w- without talking about the the book and the movie, and uh, what Billy Bean did there, and then bringing it to life, both in the book, in um, the movie, accelerated, you know, th- this industry, mm-hmm. which it's a legitimate industry at this point. Like mm-hmm. people can can whine and moan that it's ruining their respective sports. And I'll explain why you're wrong all day on that, but, (laughs) um, it's a legitimate industry at this point. It's a small industry. It's not healthcare or something, but it's a legitimate industry. Um, and that was accelerated. So, you know, I I was a little lucky in that the timing of those things aligned. Like I was coming out of college. I happened to be learning these technical skills because it took the best paying job I could get out of undergrad. Right. And like, oh, I learned SQL and Tableau and Python and R. And now I'm learning. I, I remember the first time I heard what a, a regression model was. Mm-hmm. I was literally talking to somebody about fantasy football and I was like deciding who to draft. And it's like, how much should I wait? Like, how many times a running back gets a ball versus how many times that, you know, what his yards per carry is. And I'm looking at my spreadsheet of my fantasy football league and I'm talking to someone like, ah, oh, it's like kind of you can use that as a regression model. And that was like a decade ago. Um, so I I pivoted about five or six years into my career. I went to work at FanDuel. And so that was me kind of coming into sports. If you guys remember, that was when FanDuel and DraftKings was every uh commercial on television. Every other commercial, yes. Oh my oh my God. It was it was absolutely insane. And then I think there was like a Saturday Night Live parody of those commercials. Like that's that's when you know you're a, a cult thing, a culture uh piece. But um did that, that was my introduction. That was like half sports, half business. Um but I knew at that point I was trying to get a job, um, at a pro team, ideally in the NBA. Uh, my father was a college basketball coach at VCU grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and that's just like my father and I communicate by talking basketball. We still do to this day. Um, I have to explain to him why the game has evolved a little bit since he was a coach in the nineties, uh, in, in college. But, um, one of his uh, one of his best phrases still rings true. Shoot it before you lose it, um, <laughs> and uh, it's it's still pretty pretty true to, in the modern game. But I, I really wanted to work in basketball, and I started just chipping away at that through networking. Because I was working at FanDuel, I could get into some of those spaces, get into the dinners at Sloan, get into the networking. People would kind of take my coffee, cold call, phone calls. Um, I'll never forget. I think it was. Uh, kirk Lacob, um who was assistant gm of the warriors at the time um senator joe Lacob, um like took my cold email and emailed me back with i think i sent him 10 questions and he you know in line responded to all of them and, and so i was very thankful to people like that who were mm-hmm. just giving me a little bit of time and giving me a little bit because it's a hard industry to break into especially in the on the team operations side right if you're talking about going to work for a team in a specific you know sport there's 30 teams and in 2016 there was two of those jobs on average per team. And so that's 60 job openings. That's your universe of opportunity. Um, And so I was very lucky to to get an introduction to, uh, then at the time, Justin Zanuck, General Manager of the Utah Jazz, Assistant General Manager at the time of the Utah Jazz. Um, They were looking to uh, really formalize their analytics department. They had had one guy there previously kind of in an intern role. And, you know, kind of, again, more lucky than anything I did The technologies that like their IT department wanted to use happened to be the things I had been using a lot in my Mm -hmm. career. The types of databases, the types of visualization techniques, the types of tools just happened to be the stuff they were kind of looking for. So right place, right time. Um, So was lucky enough to join them for three and a half, four years, um, joined them right after uh, they drafted Donovan Um, and through the pandemic season um, as well. Um and obviously very formative. Dennis Lindsay, Justin Zanek, David Morway, obviously Coach Quinn Snyder. Um, you know, I you know, I walked in there and they, you know, they thought they were might be a rebuilding team. Gordon Hayward just left, just drafted Donovan, traded up uh from I forget where they were at, but traded up to thirteen. Um
1: real quick, what was or, yeah. mo- what was more important? Donovan Mitchell's insane workout that Dennis Lindley said he was going to kill somebody if it got out.
2: So you the you know, so you've talked to David Locke. You talked, <laughs> talked to David Locke about that story. Yeah. Uh, David Locke loves telling that story. Um,
3: <laughs>
2: it, you know, I think it. Uh, the work. I, so I wasn't there for that workout. I wasn't. I was employed <laughs> in the team like a couple of weeks later. Mm. But um, I, so I wasn't in the building for that workout. But yeah, it was. It's a thing of legend around there. <laughs> I think uh, Josh Hart was also in that workout. You're kidding. Oh about, wow, believe, that's that's I two dogs in a workout.
3: Hard. Yeah, it is.
2: Yeah, and uh, again, I went there, so I don't know. I, I know Donovan played well. I don't know if that means he did. He, you know, he played well relative to Josh or alongside of Josh mm. or or what. Um, typically, you know, so typically in a draft workout, you'll have six. You can only have a maximum of six players yeah. in the official draft workout. For folks that that may not know this, um, you can have six. So you'll you'll do one on o drills. Uh, aside from all the testing and conditioning pieces, mm-hmm. you'll do. Uh, one-on-one drills, uh, one-on-one drills, and three-on-three, and you'll play some three-on-three. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some, we had something called the uh, the, um, the Stockton drill at the end, which is six full-court layups in a certain number of seconds uh, <laughs> with with your off hand the entire time. Uh, but um, so yeah, so that, that's the and teams are going to do twenty of those maybe in the course of a season. Maybe not twenty, maybe at least ten probably. Get sixty guys in um, over the course of a season. Some of you know aren't not draft eligible. So Donovan's was a thing of a thing of legend around Utah, you know, but there, the other variables there, um, you know, second year guards don't typically come out in the lottery, right? Like second year players are typically not lottery players. If you're a lottery player, you're coming out early, or maybe you're you stayed all four years and really progressed like a Grayson Allen or somebody like that. Um, so that, that was kind of rare. I also know that Dennis's son, Jake Lindsay. So Dennis Lindsay was the general manager at the time. His son, Jake Lindsay played at Baylor four year guard at Baylor. Mm-hmm. He's now, um, Dobo at Grand Canyon, and he that Baylor team played Louisville, and Dennis was visiting with Baylor at the time, and I think Dennis told this on the Woj pod once. Dennis was visiting with Baylor at the time, and uh, they were playing Louisville, so he sat in on the scouting meeting, and you know they were honed in on Donovan. And I think that helped him put initially put him on the team's radar as well. But like all things, those are huge group efforts, and that's why the draft, even at pick thirteen or Going back pick 27 with Gobert, mm-hmm. um, you know, draft night can can change the course of a franchise really, really significantly, even without the you know, first or second pick.
3: Yeah, I, I'm curious, something you just mentioned there, Corey, and, you know, not everybody is analytically driven in terms of the way that they kind of watch basketball, as you noted with your dad. And he coached in a much different era, despite what you may have convinced or talked your, you know, your kind of your position with him on in whatever range of basketball. I'm curious, what was the thing or a couple of things that maybe you guys have griped over the most that he's like, no, you don't get it. From the coaching angle, it's this. And you're like, no, but analytically, it's this. Like, what are those, or what were those those back and forth like with a basketball coach from the 90s and a guy yeah. that's fully emerged in numbers?
2: Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing is he wants, he probably overvalues ISO, and guys who can break you down and get you a bucket
3: mm-hmm. and
2: and this is actually this gets into another topic that i'll we'll, we'll, i'll extend into because i'd be curious what you guys think mm-hmm. but um he want you know when we when utah was playing well with donovan especially bef- before they added conley um they didn't really have you know rodney hood go get you a bucket ricky rubio is, is more creating out of pick and roll mm-hmm. even conley's going to create out of pick and roll more, more often you know is. Jay Crowder, J- Joe Ingles, again pick and roll, but not doing it nice. So, so there, there was there was no second player to go like break you down and get a bucket. Defenses could hone in on Don late game scenarios where you know who's taking the shot, right? So my dad was always like, you need a second guy to go. You know, you need you need someone who can draw the attention off go get you a bucket. Something Portland has with Simons right now in space, um, and I always probably didn't value that. I didn't value that nearly as much because I was like, well we have the number three offense in the league or whatever we were in, in any given year. It was always near the top, especially once the bogey um, signing and moved away from Crowder and favors. And I was like, hey, number three offense in the league. I think we're just fine without a player who can go break you down and get you. But like, I'm, I'm probably not optimizing my roster construction for, you know, take a donovan mitchell and put a you know insert you know whatever that whoever that player could be instead of conley or ingles or bogdanovich Mm -hmm. like I, i think we're doing just fine and so something that's always bugged me in the extension of that and i've had arguments with scouts about this with with assistant coaches about this day as long something that still bugs me to this day about kind of the modern game is how reduced it gets in that late game scenario. I specifically remember it was like a double overtime game against OKC, the Paul George, OKC team, which like 2018 in Utah. Mm -hmm. And it was like five minutes of Donovan and Paul George doing you go, I go. And it was, it's entertaining as hell too. So it's like, it's just like two bulls in a ring going at it. And Paul George being such a great defender and he's defending Donovan on, Mm -hmm. on those, on that side of the ball. Uh, But you know, Quinn Snyder has – and not to say this is Quinn Snyder's fault by any means, but Quinn Snyder's designed an offense that, you know, I mean, you guys – I mean, we called it the blender, right? Yes. You get it going, 1-5 chest, get downhill, force the force the guy to chop on, the, on the, uh, the weak side help, boom, but we know it's going back over the shoulder, then it's swinging, swinging, and, you know, Quinn went from number one defense in the league to number one offense in the league with different roster constructions and started taking all the threes and stuff and really got that ball movement with those um, – Couple last couple of teams before they broke it up. So it's like, why are we going away from that? We were the number one offense in the league, number one three point shoot, shooting team in the league. To like kind of reductionist basketball, and that that's not unique to Utah's situation by any means. Pretty much every team does this in a late game situation. By and large, it's just we're down one with 18 seconds, and we need a bucket. and We're going to walk it up, and our guy's going to be your guy.
3: I mean, 2016 I, I, Game 7, right? Cavs-Warriors. It was like the last five minutes of that game. It just seemed like everybody was frozen, and you're just playing iso ball and hoping somebody hits a shot.
2: And maybe maybe you're playing 1-5 chess, pick and roll, but that's that's about it. Right. I, you know, it's something – yeah, I'd be curious if you guys, like, why don't teams run, you know, their down-screen actions or off-ball actions in those scenarios? It's the interesting.
1: Que- the question I've always had here is – what in human nature causes us to go to that? it's 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 like grabbing a thunder blanket in the storm. It, it it's it's a it's a it's a comforting place to go to knowing that you have a guy. And a perfect example is Dame. Dame is a guy yeah. who historically, regardless of what analytics a a <laughs> one five pick and roll with Damian Lillard is one of the best offenses in the NBA. Yep. hands down, no doubt, throughout his entire career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you look at scoring pick and roll guards, it is him and Chris Paul. That is the list. When you talk about the last 15, 20 years in the NBA, if I, if I remember right, his career points per possession in the pick and roll as a ball handler is over one still, which is insane. I'll tell you. I'll, yeah.
2: Yeah. Average offense is 95 as a, as a benchmark average word mm. offense. So yeah. yeah.
1: So Dame unto himself at a one five pick and roll basically is an elite offense. and, I understand the desire to go to that, but I've always wondered why you can't layer it. Why you can't run additional actions, why you can't go somewhere else with it. But at the same time, when you've got a decade of results, we always talk about data sets and noise and how much data we're working with. With Damian Lillard, you're working with an extensive amount of data. And it's been successful. And I think there's a, I don't know where that threshold is, and this is in basketball and in business. There are certain thresholds that you have to cross in order for a decision maker to make a change one way or the other, and I don't know how to get over that threshold in the NBA where you don't go to that when you've got a record of a 1,000-plus possessions that comes out on the top. Damon's is Dame, so Damon's
2: run here. I'll give you I'll we'll put numbers to it. Uh give, give me I have this going back to I think tracking started about the year he came
1: in. It's it's 1213 it yeah. Twenty twelve? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um how many pick and rolls?
1: Oh God. Uh, oh Jesus. There, I want to say <laughs> that he that runs country. like thirty eight a night, so when he's played <sighs> See, he probably averaged 75 games, so probably 800 games. So pro- probably right around 3,800. He's he's
2: third in the tracking area, tracking era. Yeah, in, in total, terms of just number of
1: pick and volume. Rolls. I'm going to say 3,800 wow. right in there.
2: He's third behind Paul, Chris Paul, and James Harden.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. He won uh,
2: 23,917 pick
1: and rolls. <laughs> so that's the screen and rescreens.
2: Jeez. Yeah, it's probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's probably a that One makes that that thousand. makes
1: okay. That makes sense because I'm when I'm taking the numbers, I'm going off of what is synergy. You're looking at second spectrum, sure. right? So for those that don't know, this is a, this is a great this is a great point. So this when is the
2: weeds I, of it.
1: yes, when I reference synergy stuff, guys, just so you know, that is a result action only. That is a shot, a bucket, a foul, a turnover, or an assist. You have to have a result action. What second spectrum does is track. Every single action that takes place, regardless of it generating a result.
2: Mm -hmm. So it's it's probably good. Yeah, it's probably good for for people to understand kind of what's unique about what we're doing this year mm -hmm. in Portland as it relates to second spectrum, too, because so second spectrum, people know that we call them the optical. They're the official optical tracking providers of the NBA. There are lots of places to get data synergy, second spectrum, sport radar. The NBA itself generates um, data sets for, you know, internally for teams uh, and for their partners. And so Second Spectrum is a company, uh, I think it's out of Stanford, um, but what they what they basically have done is a couple of things. Ten cameras in every arena. They're up in the rafters. They're really small. I mean, they're mm-hmm. like a little bit larger than a Game Boy. You really wouldn't see them. Um, ten cameras in every arena, taking video of all the angles of the court. Sitting on sitting on top of that video feed is something called computer vision. Computer vision is basically turning pixels of video into data points.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because if you you know you have a ten twenty eight by a ten twenty eight or a much higher depth resolution image, you actually turn all those things into data points, and now you can analyze it. Uh, that creates a data set that is the x y x and y coordinate of every player and the x y z coordinate of the ball twenty five times a second. So now you have this massive data set that ends up being roughly, I think, 3 million data points a game. If you play out 48 minutes, 60 seconds, 25 times a second players in the ball uh, and officials. Now that you have that data set, I have all these coordinates. Cool. That's helpful. Sometimes You, you want to do very custom fine grained analysis about positioning. You can use that data set to do it. What's really helpful is you teach with another layer of machine learning, they did this with the Celtic staff back in like 2010 when they were getting started. They sat in the video room and they said, well, we're gonna watch a thousand pick and rolls. Tell me what that coverage is, tell me what that coverage is. Tell, you know, that's ice, that's blue, that's center field, that's hedge, that's blitz, right? Like go through all that and do that with every sort of machination of handoffs, pick and rolls, drives, different types of coverages, zone and mandy. You teach it. So now you now you have essentially a data set that's labeled. You have you have the answers, right? So that was zone defense. That was man defense. And you do that a thousand times or a couple thousand times. Now you can take that back to the coordinate system that you have from that video and you can learn. That's why they call it machine learning. The machine can learn that, okay, zone defense looks like this in the coordinate system. Man defense looks like this. A pick and roll looks like these things. A shot looks like this, right? We, you know, if you think about three, three three-dimensional grid of a basketball, it's pretty easy to know what a shot is actually, wrap all that together, you know, plus another decade of R and D and a bunch of people like half their department, their COO, Mike Deoria played basketball at MIT. And like mm-hmm. half their department played basketball at MIT. So they're like the perfect people to do this. Um, and it's ubiquitous in the NBA. It's, it's a league wide deal. Every team gets a basic package. Most every team also pays for an additional package mm-hmm. to give you, you know, I want to see the 23,917 pick and rolls that Damian Lillard has run this year or in, in, since the uh, tracking came in. Portland is the first broadcast group to sign up for this. So what Jeff Curtin and the group basically did, you know, with Mrs. Allen and, and, and Burt's leadership is said, we want to add this. This is a, every team is using this. Let's get this for our fans. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, and that's kind of the whole big picture of what we're doing here is, you know, th- that was previously my role was to do that for a team. And but let's extend that now to the fan base. So let's understand when Damian Lillard passes it to Josh Hart in the corner instead of taking a running floater like he would have been his alternative last night. How much value did that potentially create? And we're actually going to talk about that in the pregame show tomorrow. But we can quantify and do those things. Every team front office is doing it. Granted, at varying levels. Some teams have a dozen people. Some teams have one or two. But um, th- that was essentially the the impetus for this whole program. And it's good to explain. Like when when you hear second spectrum on the broadcast, or you see those little percentages show up in some of the replays above the players' heads, that's what that is. That's how this all works. And that's part of why I was really excited to do this this
3: project too. Can, can I take a can I take a shot in the dark real quick? By the way. Yeah. So some of this is just it's psychology to a certain extent, right? Because you can't really answer your question unless you're taking into account everybody's team situation, roster building, how a player grew up. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I didn't I didn't play basketball in a driveway in the last 15 seconds countdown and go, Well, I'm gonna pass and screen now to nobody. I dribbled and I shot the basketball. <laughs> I just I inherently basketball. Yes, it's a team sport. Yes, some teams do this really, really well. Golden State largely is pretty good, I would say, at the end of games because there's so much unselfishness. But, I mean, this is ego. This is guys grew up like they got themselves to that point. I just I think it's inherent. I think it's psychology of basketball kind of in itself. It doesn't make the most sense. I don't know how you quantify that with numbers. But I think it's a shot in the dark because I'm with you. I How many times do you watch the last few minutes of a game and you go, Can we run a play like we're just doing step back threes from 30 feet away? Like, what are we doing here? I think some of it's just inherently it's kind of a selfish game in that way when you grow up. I think it's the
2: one of the hardest things of basketball at the professional level is the acceptance that we're, you know, we not we, but not not there are not 500 Damian Lillard's in the league. Mm -hmm. Right. But all of those guys were Damian Lillard in AAU. All of them were Damian Lillard in high school. All of them were basically Damian Lillard in college as well. <laughs>
4: yeah. Right. Right. And
2: now all of a sudden you gotta come in and be Royce O'Neill. <laughs> and I just use Royce O'Neill because he's like the consummate role. Player, right. Right. Yeah. You gotta be, you know, Jeremy Grant's played that spectrum of of roles in, in both his both career. Yep. Mm-hmm. He's played both sides of it in his career. And and now he's maybe we found uh you know, the one that's just the right. Goldilocks so
1: sweet spot. Yeah, the
2: Goldilocks zone, right? Exactly. Um so I, I think that's Baseball, that's not a problem. You're a baller left fielder. You just go be a baller left fielder. Mm -hmm. You're a baller, pitcher, catcher, whatever. You just go do that. NFL, kind of the same thing, right? Like sometimes they switch guys from like receiver to D-back and stuff. But if you're an O-lineman, you just – you're the best O-lineman. And if you're good enough, you keep going up in ranks, right? Yeah. You know, basketball is the one sport where you get to the NBA. By and large, forget everything you've learned about the game and learn how to play hard. Yeah. Not everything. Right. right right but you know we we drafted a guy in utah named justin right foreman who uh hofstra um a10 scoring champion you know absolute walking bucket three on three the college three on three senior tournament won it with his a10 group and you know guys playing overseas right he's mm-hmm. you know six foot six foot one type of a, type of a guy and you know we we took a legitimate chance on him like the 53rd pick it wasn't a bad pick or anything but all the all the guy could do is score george Nyang, big 12 player of the year right iowa state mm-hmm. like certified bucket in college
1: mm-hmm.
2: and what, what you know what does he do stands in the corners and knocks down three <laughs> he's, he's a he movement out stretch
1: defense. four now yeah yeah
2: you know so i think that's one of the hardest things about adapting um to the professional game for a lot of players, player development programs internally within teams are, are, or you know, both with technology and just how they develop their players. Like learning to play pick and roll is a drop big. Like you go watch college basketball. There's not a lot of backpedaling from the fives. They either come up to the level or they switch or they just mm-hmm. sit back. in on defensive three seconds, right? Yeah. So to learn like, and oh, by the way, to learn how to do that requires like six, five other human beings, Mm -hmm. essentially, at least three other, because you need a ball handler, ball handler, defender, screener, screener, defender. And ideally someone in the corner that you're going to pass to. So at least put a warm body in the corner or that's going to come help on D. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that's really hard to train. How do you train that? Like you don't need six people to train a pitcher in baseball. You need one high-speed camera and one coach. And a catcher. No, you don't even really need the catcher. Um, same thing as a hitter in baseball. But the, the the dynamic elements of the sport are probably part of the reason we all love it. But make those problems, those questions that, you know, it's 2022. And teams are just figuring out how to implement technology into player development. I mean, every team's a little different. Wearables and tracking
1: and stuff like that
2: cloak and dagger a little bit cloak and dagger too yeah. right but um but we're just thinking about it in the ways that baseball is just mild decades ahead because mm-hmm. yeah for sure um and so it, it, it's it's a really it, it, it's what's so interesting about it for and for me from the technology space because how can i apply that to the questions we're asking
0: Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: As it pertains to those questions that are being asked, as it pertains specifically to the Blazers, without you know going into too much or giving away too much. When you look at just the, the the data sets that we can bring up via Synergy or Second Spectrum, what are the, the the context clues that are popping up in this team? And I use context clues uh, specifically because that's incredibly important when we're talking about the application of this data. Is there's so much that we have now? It's it's the fire hose, right? As far as mm-hmm. uh, folks that aren't used to working with large data sets. Like oh you can look at this oh you can look at this oh you can look at this and I remember my my introduction to this was was quite literally you know during doing early sequel in like 2003 overseas monitoring like literal terrorist attacks over you know in in Iraq yeah. in Afghanistan you know charting a, a, a an attack map and we use that to kind of uh, change our patrol patterns and and our tactics around it's the same kind of theory when you're talking about your application of your defensive principles Now Chauncey Phillips certified Hooper. Let's not, let's not get it twisted. He goes off a lot of feel, but a lot of his feel I would venture to say that is based off a lot of those context clues that are bearing themselves out so far for the Blazers this year. Does that sound correct?
2: I think so. I think so. And I think when you, you know, what, what we're doing, cause we're from the outside looking in and, you mm-hmm. know, obviously I'm not in coach Billups' meetings and, <laughs> and, um, and, and, Nobody who is in those meetings is talking about them publicly, obviously, no. but um, we're, we're kind of inferring it. We're, we're reverse engineering it yes. as, as really interested fans and, and our roles kind of covering the team in different ways. And so I think a lot of, and again, I was maybe, um, and I'm not making um, a comparison here, but because it's the only coach I've worked with on a personal level, you know, I was, probably pretty spoiled with Quinn Snyder because he was just, you know, a a information sponge, right? There was nothing that was too out of left field as an idea, or, you know, usually the ideas were his that he wanted to investigate. I mean, look, he went from like the number one defense with Derek favors and Jay Crowder and Rudy Gobert to the number one offense with, you know, Conley and and Bogdanovich. So I can't speak highly enough of, of coach Snyder, but it's, it goes back to the principles that are going to be informed by your worldview. Essentially. Every coach has a set Mm -hmm. of principles that they want to play by.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And that set of principles, whether, you know, informed by analytics is almost not the right word there. You know, it's, it's formed by their life experience
1: Mm -hmm.
2: from where they, they're, you know, where they played in college and, did they play professionally and who were their coaching mentors and who did they play under and what worked and how have they, the game has changed certainly dynamically, you know, driven by some of this new information that's available. How do they view that? How do they bake that into the types of sets they draw up? How do they, so how do they do all of those things? Right. And we We are kind of trying to reverse engineer that from it. And I think what we see, or at least what I see early on are, things like on the defensive side of the ball, a, a real, uh, elasticity, a, a willingness to do different things.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Is, is probably been one of the biggest things I've seen early on from this team. And again, contrasting with my previous experience, when you have a Gobert, you don't do a lot of different things. <laughs> you know, you let, you let him, you let him, you know, be the dominant force that he is inside, but small ball switching lineups zone, um, but principled, they don't foul. Number five in allowing mm-hmm. opponents to get to the free throw line. Like opponents only get to the free throw line eighteen, you know, eighteen point five percent free throw attempt rate from cleaning the glass. Like they, they don't get to the free throw line. They don't foul. That's a that's something that coaches are beating into the heads of their mm-hmm. guys, right? Throughout, throughout, because I think Coach Phillips has said it in one of his press conferences, the best shot is still two free throws.
1: It's the, the worst play you can make as a defender is to foul. Right. He is. I think right. he said that probably three or four times in, in pregame stuff. Like, and, and if he's saying not, it that that like much, a, yeah. he's saying it in that locker room and at practice all the mm-hmm. time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And offensively, I mean, it's a team that gets the gets the basket, gets the line, and is a really good shooting team. Maybe the three point when you get to the when you get to the rim so much, your three point volume kind of by definition because there's only a hundred percent of shots. Mm-hmm. Um, but they took thirty seven threes last night. And they they were second going into the game. Let me see what they are right now after all of last night's games. Yeah, still second, 40.6% as a team. So the, there's identities there that I, you know we can pick up on and kind of reverse engineer from looking at just team level four factors type stuff.
3: Hey, Corey, when you got hired, I'm curious, what did you decide, okay – I'm going to be on the broadcast for the Portland Trailblazers. What do you dive into analytically to maybe, I don't know, have some more information outside of just looking at roster construction and then like how much has that information pivoted to, oh, crap, (laughs) some of these numbers are no good or this team is night and day different than what some of the numbers would suggest. I know they weren't with Dame last year, but I'm curious what you looked at to identify what this team might be this year and how different those numbers look so far.
2: I would say – two things there. One is, is kind of how interesting that the year to year dynamic was, you know, I, I was spoiled in that when I was in a front office, I had a ton of continuity, mm-hmm. um, you know, changes, but the, the two or three main players basically stayed the same for my you know, entire four years. Um, so that's been interesting because usually it's like, what, you know, especially in your first 10 games, it's like, ah, we were eighth in this whatever thing last year, whatever like, that's kind of thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. a little bit from an analysis standpoint and there was no good well-informed prior to use a statistical term on what the team would be going into the year i mean aside from i think i do think vegas was a little pessimistic um without any kind of homer bias there um I do you yeah. think vegas was a little pessimistic on the team well, going into the year
3: they are every but, year
2: <laughs> sure uh, yeah i mean if you
1: took the over on portland you, the last seven years you would have won
3: yeah, you've cashed.
2: Uh, if you took well, the under on not the last year. If you yeah. took if you took the under on the Lakers the last seven years, you might own them.
3: <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> but um, so yeah, so I would say there was no. It was kind of interesting, a new experience for me in that standpoint. That there wasn't like, oh, we know this is like a you know forty four to forty nine win team. Like a lot of teams, you can
0: pretty bracket bucket. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, so there was, they, there was one of the widest range of outcomes of anybody in the league. So that, that's, that was super interesting. Um, the, the stuff that, but the stuff that I want to look at, the things that I immediately want to come in and look at and start tracking early. And I, this is why we've structured the pregame shows the way that we have early on. Um, and for folks who aren't familiar with these concepts, but everything at a team level starts at the four factors and kind of distills and drills through those. So I know you guys are familiar with this, but the concept here is every team aside from two for ones, is essentially going to possess the ball the same number of times in a game. Like, number of possessions might be one or two different, but you essentially possess the ball the same number of times. So it would follow, the only way to win a basketball game is to get more out of your possessions than your opponent does. And there are four ways to do that. Make more shots, turn it over less, get offensive rebounds and extend the possession, and get to the line. Which is kind of a version of make more shots, but get to the line. Um, There's the only four ways to improve a possession. Or on defensive side, to disprove, you know, not let your opponent do those things. Um, and so those eight numbers can tell a lot of stories. You know, the stuff we I was just talking about getting to the line, not letting the opponents get to the line, being a good three point shooting team, getting a lot of shots at the rim. Um, and the research is basically borne out how important each of those factors are. So the order I just gave them in shooting, not turning it over, getting offensive rebounds, and getting to the line are in order of importance. And it's like fifty percent, give or take fifty percent shooting, twenty percent not turning it over. That's seventy. Call it, uh, fifth you know, uh, you know, fifteen percent or eighteen percent getting to the line, and twelve percent or eighteen percent getting boards, and twelve percent getting to the line. So by orders of magnitude, shooting is like twice as important as uh, anything else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like shooting and everything else aggregates like the same amount. That's like the statistical validation of the term. It's a make or miss league. Right? Uh, yeah. which you'll hear me say a lot because <laughs> like look, sometimes you're gonna lose games and it's like they shot shot us out of the gym, shake your hand,
1: go on. You yep. know? I want I wanna hit on that one in shooting luck and shooting variance where mm-hmm. this is something I, I don't think well, why aren't they knocking down shots? They're open, da. da, da the whole idea of shooting luck. And it will, it will bear itself out over particularly the three point line Uh, individual players. Historically, I know this has changed since the, then I believe this proof was like 2014, 2015. It's changed since then. A NBA player from the time they come into the league until they hit 753 point attempts. That was supposed to be the stabilization normalization point for three point shooters. I think it's down to like 500 now because of the skill curve in the NBA being so much stronger on the shooting side than it was historically. Again, this is getting super nerdy, but getting into that, when you talk about the Blazers, right, let's, let's use the Blazers specifically, their shot profile has changed dramatically. As far as getting to the rim versus taking thirty-seven to forty three-pointers a game under Terry Stotts historically, where is that line of shooting luck and shooting variance, and where does it get get conflated the most? I think,
2: I think the hardest thing to do is to not knee-jerk a single game off of it mm-hmm. as a fan, right? Even as a front-office employee yep. or a coach, you know. Um, Terrence Mann shot the Utah Jazz out of a series. I mean, you know, it just... That's, it the, guy, that's the guy you literally designed your defense... Like, somebody's going to take a three-pointer for the other team. Like, if you're... Put yourself in a coach's shoes. Like, somebody's taking a shot at the other team. All we can really control is who takes it and where. If we're... You know, if we're good at our job as a defense, we can control those things. Because we can't turn you over every possession, or else we would, right? Like, so... Those, I've had games where I just watched DeRozan just cook teams and it was like, you're probably pretty happy with the game defensively and you lost by 20 Mm -hmm. to a Spurs, you know, a Spurs DeRozan that just, you know, Chris Paul does the same thing, right? They took what the team gave them and they're elite at this one skill and you can't stop everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And so shooting variance is something, it's why you'll hear me on the broadcast talk so much more about where the shots are coming from process. Are they contested? Are they catch and shoot that? Because if I go into a game at halftime, if I put myself in a hypothetical coach's shoes or if I've, you know, not that I've been a coach, but I've talked to coaches at halftime of games before. And what are you deciding at halftime? Do I need to change something in the way I'm playing? You know, do I need to make different substitutions? Do I need to run different sets? Do I need to change my process? because we can't control our outcome, but you're asking, do I change my process? And let's say you're down 10 at halftime and someone just went, the other team went 18 for 20 from three. You're actually probably in a pretty good spot. Now, if all 20 were wide open clay Thompson threes, that's not very good. If all 20 were kind of in the normal course of the rhythm, you know, a handful were wide open, but most are, you know, well contested and, you know they're not catch and shoot. And you're you take the heat the game last in.
1: night, the first half.
2: Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know that it ever got onto the broadcast. I don't think I did a halftime hit last game just because of weird East Coast time. But I, yeah, I, I kind of came out of halftime being like pretty good spot, okay spot.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know we going out of, out of the third quarter last night. We had taken ten less field goal attempts mm-hmm. than Miami, and we were only down eight points. I was like, it's not a bad spot. you got to stop turning it over, but that's not a bad spot. Like all things can, like if you're, you should be down 18 (laughs) with 10 less field goal attempts. So, um, so those are, those are the things that I will look at because if I'm putting myself in the practitioner's shoes here, playing armchair quarterback a little bit, I cannot control whether or not Anfernee makes a three. Mm -hmm. I know Anfernee is one of the best catch and shoot three point shooters in the NBA. So what I can do is control whether or not Anthony gets catch and shoot threes. Is my offense designed in such a way to allow him to do that? Our, our counters—we know defenses are going to try to take that away. So what are our counters, uh, and all of those types of things? And so, the process numbers—the the, the in, I'm going to look at the inputs more so. I think is a good good way to generally classify it, and that's probably going to be the difference in our broadcasts than, you know, team go you know, a defense goes on a run and makes three contested threes in a row. And if, if, if you're, you know, if your input to that as a defense, if you freeze frame, when the player releases the shot, are you okay with him taking that shot? Like, think about it that way. That's, you know, it's harder to do obviously, but we would do that in um, player evaluation sometimes.
3: I, I don't I don't know, Corey, if there'd be numbers correlated to this. So this might be a stupid question, but I, I know one of the big talking points for Blazer fans right now, it, it's a great season, it's a great start, fun games. One of the negatives for this team seems to be turnovers. I mean, they their turnover rate is it's pitiful. It's it's not good so far. They're turning the ball over at a very high rate. I'm curious, is there any way statistically using any kind of data to to track like what the numbers suggest you will be? and like how, what's the sample size you would need, I guess, from an analytic standpoint where you start to say, okay, this might just be who they are versus like, Oh, Hey, this can turn around. Cause I know a lot of people are curious about that. And I, j- I, I don't think about that kind of stuff analytically. So like, how would you sure. evaluate that?
2: Sure. Um, so the, it's two things I'll talk, we'll talk about the turnovers and I'll talk about like stabilization in general of metrics. Um, cause every metric has a different profile, but, um, I think the, the two halves of last night's game were really telling to that topic of turnovers. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I forget which player said it in the interview, whether it was Damien or, or somebody else in the locker room, maybe, but that the first half was just a, the level of sharpness was not there. The, the precision, the urgency with the passing, some of those things just were not there. In uh, the second half, I mean, two turnovers in the fourth quarter. I don't remember how many in the third, Um but I think it was like six total, so maybe it was four in the third. I think it was six total in the second half, and like 12 in the first half. So, yeah, second, half. second um, half was six. Yeah, so you do see in anecdotally in samples that you know it took them having their back against the wall a little bit. Maybe you'd like it to not have that, <laughs> uh, to force that out of you, but with that, when that urgency's there, that you know they are not necessarily inherently a high turnover team or they do not have to be. Um, so bringing it back to process again, you know, if I'm looking at that from a, you know, a coaching perspective or an evaluation perspective, how can I insert that urgency kind of from the get-go? Because the way they protected the ball in the second half is great. If you had 12 turnovers a game, you'd lead the league. You have the fewest. Um, so that that would be really great. So I think there there is a little bit of give and take with the, the amount of transition they're running and what Josh – likes to do like I think everybody in every blazer fan is loving the transition offense and look transition offenses are like one twenty five o rating compared to ninety five for half court offenses. so you would have to turn it over a lot to make the the transition not be worth it, but those things will kind of move in tandem where if you run in transition a lot, you'll inherently have more turnovers so, so you're
3: yeah so you're willing to basically say I don't know what the number is, but x amount of turnovers. It's just going to happen because we we want to play the style with this roster.
2: Yeah, if you were to basically if you were to plot like transition rate and turnover rate, they, you know they're not going to be. Fuck they're not around and find one-to-one. out, right? Fuck around and find <laughs> out. <laughs> be a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: um.
2: So so that's you know to the turnover piece specifically. I would say to mm-hmm. the stabilization of metrics because it's that's another thing that's pretty heavily researched kind of in the basketball data space is mm-hmm. when can we trust any number. You were talking about three point shooting earlier. Uh, you, it takes a long time to trust three point shooting um, relative to other things. Like, yes. if, if you're good at the rim, that stabilizes a lot quicker. Um, another thing, talking about inputs versus outputs, a team's three point attempt rate, how often they take threes, stabilizes much quicker to how often they make their threes. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. though. Your, your your profile your decision making your inputs stabilize a lot quicker than your output and it kind of makes sense clay thompson best three-point shooter steph curry to pick who you want if they're wide open it's like a coin flip give or take mm-hmm. plus or minus a few percentage points depending on who you're talking about so of course it's going to take a long time to stabilize mm-hmm. you know uh, it, it just it, it's just the inherent nature of it now to the turnover number, I'd have to look it up where, where it's stabilization goes. There's a guy out there named Krishna Narsu. I tweeted one of his articles like a week or two ago because yep. we were asking the same thing about defensive rating.
1: Mm-hmm. They were
2: like, through five games, the number two defense. Um, I think as it sits today, based on defensive rating, well, I just looked at it. 12,
1: 112
2: D rating. There you go. Um, I use cleaning the glass and
1: yeah, that's literally what I have up right here.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, shout out Ben Falk. Um, Mm -hmm. the OG, but uh, uh, yeah, um, so 112 defensive rating. Uh, people were talking about that early on because they were, you know, they held the Lakers to a very low number, they held a lot of their early games, so their D rating was really good. And defensive rating takes like 16 games to stabilize based on the research, and what we're saying is basically. You learn you learn new things as as the season goes on about the team. You you know at the end of the season you know a hundred percent about what the team is. So where does that bend in the curve happen where you stop learning exponentially and you just kind of gain new information? Because game one, game two, game three, we're learning a lot about the profile of the team every time. Game sixty-two, we're not gaining a lot of new incremental information about mm-hmm. who the team is. Right, if that makes sense.
1: It's the refinement. So
2: yeah. Yeah. And you're just little like shooting or defense or whatever. Like we know who you are. Uh, and so those curves kind of like go up and then they, they really flatten. Um, so for, you know, for something like three point shooting, it might be 40 games for something like defensive rating. It's, you know, 15 to 20. Um, so our general rule of thumb, like 20 games, you can really start trusting metrics generally, you know, as a, as a, just a good, a good rule of thumb. So halfway there.
1: yeah. I, I, I have been hammered over the years of being downer Danny because there was a very real ceiling on what the Blazers had built uh, up until really last year. And along those lines, one of the things that I belabored was their inability to force turnovers and to get out in transition. Now, they're not forcing turnovers at a rate that, you know, the most disruptive teams in the league do, but they're still above where they were. And they're running significantly more than they ever have in the past ten years. Yeah. But there's also a line of they're turning the ball over more than anyone. I believe they're seven they're number one in the league. Last I looked, they were over seventeen. Seventeen point six percent of their offensive possessions right now are resulting in a turnover. So almost one in five. Uh league average right now is fourteen point nine. So
3: Danny, do you have metrics on the, like, because what Corey said there, like, just tempo and pushing the ball? Do you have like where they rank in that? Because I'm curious, like, how that, you know what I mean, is playing a factor. I'll in tell you. Yeah, he'll
1: he'll he'll have okay. the the better stuff with with uh, second yeah. spectrum on that yeah. because all you're going to get is pace, which is adjusted possessions. So no no no.
2: So actually, I'm cleaning the glass.
1: Ben has. Oh, you're um, right.
2: Percentage percentage of possessions which yeah. are tra- have a transition event, and I, I forget exactly what. The criteria is a transition event. So, but you bring up a good point. Why is pace a bad metric? And mm-hmm. people will see pace thrown around. 50% of pace is, so pace is uh, possessions per 48 minutes. So if you run up and down a hundred times in a game, you have all, your pace is a hundred. Mm-hmm. If you average that out, but half the game is controlled by your opponent. So if you play the Bucks, you're going to have a mm-hmm. high pace. If you play Portland two years ago, you're going to have a low pace. hmm you play Utah back in my day when Ricky Rubio like snuck it across the timeline at 16 on the clock every time he gave us all <laughs> a heart attack.
1: Uh you're
2: gonna have low pace. Um if you play Golden State, you're probably gonna have a high pace, right? Mm-hmm. Um so instead, let's just look at when we have the ball, what do we do? Right. Yes. Like this is this is this is just new information becomes available. We can make more accurate assessments of the thing we're trying to answer. That is like the analytics. Paradigm in a nutshell, if I had to sum it up, right? We we have more granular information now and access to it. Let's better define speed of play. Yes. How fast you play. Let's not include 50% of the data by our opponent. Um all transit so 17% of their uh possessions are transition possessions.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um that is 10th in the tenth. league. Yep. They and they but the hard effect is they're seventh off of live rebounds.
1: That's, uh, that's well, yeah, that's so Corey and I have been talking back and forth about this a little bit Um because mm. I asked him, I was like, can you tell me what Josh Hart is doing on live rebounds? Because his grab and go skyrocketed even for Josh Hart in the first, well, you I mentioned, think, six it, or you seven mentioned it on one of our live watch yeah. too, it, because this, this was a big part of their transition. And I, and I'm glad you, you, you brought that up because this is the question that I had as far as the downer Danny, this is the optimist part of me there is a rate of return in here for Portland that can be pretty ridiculous in the sense of limiting their own turnovers and getting better in transition, because those are the two things really right now, their live ball turnovers are limiting their effectiveness, both defensively and offensively by taking away possession. But also when they are turning teams over or going off live balls, they are, uh, last I checked, they were in the bottom of the league in transition effectiveness. Uh, they moved up a little bit now they're, they're 22nd now. But that that was a. But I would problem. think I would think of,
2: I would think about it a little differently instead okay. of like it's kind of hard to say I'm going to be better I'm going to be more efficient when I run in transition. Mm-hmm. That feels like kind of a maybe maybe a little less sloppy with passes. Not that saying Portland has been especially sloppy, but in general, if you were to try to pull that lever,
1: Chauncey identified the- it as as, as uh, hitting singles, simplifying sure. his process sure. after watching sure. the team.
2: No, not yeah, not try to hit the home run on the. Mm-hmm you know, make the Nikola Jokic type pass, right? Yeah. Um, what feels like an easier lever to pull is run in transition a little more frequently. And even though they're running 10th in the league, when you get that opportunity, run a little more frequently because that's an easier lever to pull. Because if I'm saying run a little more frequently, even if it's a little less effective, it's still way more effective than a half-court offense in mm-hmm. general, Right and then hey nothing's there back it out don't force it let's go to our
1: let's go board, to our stop no. right
2: um the now the on the, the turnover side of the when they're possessing the ball it's again if you're if you're a coach or you're someone on the staff looking at this it's okay which of these can we live with mm-hmm. and which of these are you know kind of the first half from that Miami game where it just didn't feel sharp mm-hmm. um what are you know look if it's a lob and the lob is otherwise going to result in two points, but it slips through the guy's hands, goes out of bounds, and it's dead ball going the other way. We'll live with it. You live with it. Yeah,
1: right. we'll live with it. Yeah,
2: throw, throwing it up to Sharp, and you know, edge you overthrew the lob a little bit, but it's dead ball. You get to back, you get set. No big deal.
1: But if it's a forty-five yeah. from the corner to the above the break, and it's a lazy pass, and Jimmy Butler may or may not night, right? grab one and go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we saw
2: one. We saw one last night, right? Yeah. Like, and and so, how much of those levers can you pull? Like. Yeah. All these things I, I try to think about it like which of those things feel adjustable, correctable? Like you can't just wish more threes to go in, right? You need to bring it back to the other stuff. Like but the rim can, rate has
1: to go down and the three rate has to go up. That's the lever you have well, to pull if but you can't, go that
2: way. Right, right. But you can't like wish the outcomes to happen, but yes. you can control the inputs. Right. So which levers feel easier to pull?
3: Um last one I got for you, Corey because you've given us a lot of information here, and I think it's been fantastic. Uh, just from a probably Utah days, I would say, so far, because it's still so early here in Portland, and I know you've worked in with other entities in sports, but just in Utah, a moment you remember specifically absolutely pissing you off because you did not agree with either something they ran or a, a lineup, whatever it was analytically that just gotcha you just couldn't get it out of your brain and maybe you got really mad or maybe you were just like I'd really hate that decision but whatever like what was the moment for you in Utah I don't know
2: all my friends still work there so I'm trying I'm trying to I'm trying to expand it to maybe generic NBA where we can all, <laughs> okay generic. Okay, I'm we, can, sorry, all, I'm we sorry. can all take yes. a dig on a mutual yes. third party yes, yes. yes. okay
3: um, let's do that
2: what what is what is a good like kind of i'm having trouble with with one right now i'm trying to think of like a draft pick or something that like somewhere oh, okay. in the league i i really really disagreed with yeah um or something over the last few years um and, and to, while i while I, like to to add a little bit of layer to it um Every, every team internally, and there's public facing ones as well that are, that are really well built, will build draft models. They'll take Mm. all the information we have about the player, their underlying stats, um, all of those types of things from college, maybe some AAU, their measurables from the combine or the jump to the vert, all that stuff. And you'll build a literal, tangible machine learning model to kind of predict the, uh, to predict the player's outcomes, um, and every team will do it. And what ends up happening inherently in those situations, and this is not unique to any of my experiences, it's happened every room around the league. Um, would be the model, the model says X. And like the model doesn't really say anything, right? Like the model is what it is, mm-hmm. but there's biased inputs. Like, there's biased inputs, like there, there's all this stuff that goes on. And so um There, there's all these things that we we understand how it's built, and a lot of our job is to communicate like the shortcomings, the understandings, the biases. I I think I would go back to um, Marvin Bagley. Mm. I think that that's mm-hmm. that's the one because I I think analytically the problem was 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 a an availability a problem of availability mm. bias. Because there had never really been a player because Jokic still hadn't won a couple of MVPs at that point.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There really hadn't been a guy who was like MVP of MVP, like just blew EuroLeague out of the water the way Luka did. Mm-hmm. And and the way these models work is they, you know they observe things happen and then they generalize the pattern. So when they see a new thing, they can map it back to that generalization. So unless you, there's other sophisticated techniques and ways to do this, but I think the Luca question lacked the appropriate information to quantitatively value him. And, and it took even people in, in my roles who I think sometimes if, if we're doing it responsibly, we don't paint by number, right? We don't just, the model says this, take this guy, no questions asked, right? There's lots of times I disagree with my own model internally mm-hmm. um, because I understood, you know, the inputs, the outputs, the limitations. And so I think that was one where even, you know, if, if we're doing our job responsibly, we can kind of look at that and say, yeah, but, the, you know, we don't have the mapping of, you know, league MVP at that age, at that team, I'm trying to wreck my basketball history brain, but I don't know that there was one No, previous mm-hmm. to Luka, He up. was one-on-one, yeah. Right, and then... Rubio was the
1: last know, time we saw anything like this. Right,
2: and Rubio's career mapped out to be a above-average point guard.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Solid,
2: above-average point guard. Exactly. Probably, you know, around the slot he got drafted. And... So there's no, there's no input to output map for those things to happen. Now, obviously the way these models work, there's very complex mathematical techniques and you can do stuff to account for all of that, but that also implies you have someone whose like full-time job. It is to think about just that one problem. (laughs) Like you go back to, so, you know, Danny, your, you know, military experience or other experience, large healthcare, pharmaceutical pick your industry. Mm -hmm. You have people whose entire job it is to think about this one little line of a problem. Yes. In, front office of basketball team when i started i was the only person working in utah we ended with four um Sergi oliva who's now assistant general manager with portland if if for folks who kind of kept close tabs hired like five people came in and portland now has one of the larger analytics departments in the league Mm. um and so they you know he's working to create this time and space and ability to look at those micro problems those very nuanced technical challenges but when you're also like doing opponent prep and we're playing in the playoffs, getting ready for the draft. And I'm like, we're getting ready for the Clipper series and all this other stuff. Right. Like how do you, you know, you're not able to go that deep on stuff. So that, that, that one is not so much something like I vehemently, vehemently disagree with, but a really
3: interesting case study of the application of a
1: process evaluation. Stuff. Yeah. I, I put yeah. you
3: in such a bad position there. I just want to say that was an amazing way of flexing out of that question. <laughs> and, and by the way, by the way, Numbers be damned. We didn't need numbers. The general manager of that franchise knew Luca and his family and he knew how good he was. He was like, Bagley. Well, (laughs) to be fair, the
2: general manager of that franchise is not the general manager
3: of that
1: franchise.
2: Yes. Yes. The owner of that franchise. Monty McNair is like one of my mentors in this business. He's an awesome, awesome human being. Um, And I think he's done a really good job there given other organizational constraints.
1: Uh, we'll get you out of here with this, and I don't want to take any more of your time because it's been tremendous. Uh, you, you alluded to it a little bit, talking about the size of the analytics department growing here in Portland and and growing in Utah. Despite the idea of the uh, eye test uh, rulers of the kingdom, <laughs> thinking that analytics are ruining basketball, oh. analytics are just getting started in basketball. What have you seen and, and what do you kind of hope to see going forward from that community and and... Uh, the growth and the different things that they can get into uh, that allows for uh, more knowledge. Because uh, talking to Dwayne Hankins, the, the president of the Blazers, one of the things when he, I was told you were being come on and, and, and like the shape of the broadcast was how do we make the fan base smarter? That was the thing. Cause that has to happen alongside this because right now baseball fans are the smartest fans in sports. Okay. They have access to more data. You've got guys on Twitter like the Pitching Ninja who will break down every bit of spin rate. They can detect when a pitcher is fatiguing or if there's something on the ball or when guys are picking up uh, 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 tipped pitches. Like There's so much out there right now just on the pitching element. That's before you get to the hitting element, the fielding element, the base. There's so many micro skills that are out there. Like, what excites you about kind of the future of analytics in basketball?
2: So to, to to follow the baseball tangent for one second, there was something really interesting. I tweeted about this that happened in the World Series. And if you follow the Astros closely, this is like I, I'm not watching baseball super closely uh, throughout throughout the summer, but you know, when it comes down to the playoffs, I, I tune in a little more. The Astros pitching does not follow a typical pitch sequence. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go fastball, fastball, change up slider, you know, or whatever, you know, kind of the traditional thing would be. And the implication there. Is that they've got a better understanding? Like they—they never threw Bryce Harper a changeup. I think the whole series or yeah. an off-speed pitch the whole series, right? And there's other guys who they never threw a fastball to the whole series, um, regardless of who the pitcher is, by the way, um, or including that information of who the pitcher is, they still don't do it. Um, and what that what you're kind of inferring from that is, and what analysis or reverse engineering is, not just they understand that like this guy can't hit up and in. But the path of this guy's bat relative to the action on this pitcher's ball,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that's that's actually what we're saying when we say, like, Harper can't hit off speed low in away or something. Mm-hmm. What we're actually saying is the path of his bat combined with, you know, where that ball breaks, how much vertical break, horizontal movement, speed, you know, gravity, all that stuff. Right. That's what we're actually saying. For decades and decades, the only information we had was, what does Bryce Harper hit on off speed, low and away. Yeah. Well, 60 miles off speed, 70 miles off speed, 80 miles off speed, 90 mile sliders nowadays, and stuff that breaks across or drops the table, right? We Those are all different pieces of it. Breaking balls are not all created equal, you know? And so what, what Houston's doing or what the implication that Houston's doing is they've mapped all of that actual data, that path, obviously pitches and breaks and spin rates and those things. And they're exploiting kind of their marginal edges that way. So now map a, a process like that to basketball. I haven't even thought about it. I mean, as a, as an industry, mm-hmm. we just, we just are getting comfortable with tracking data. I mean, three quarters of teams probably don't have someone in their front office, actually probably almost no teams, maybe outside of Portland, Philly, uh, Washington, kind of the larger more OKC mm-hmm. uh, now the Knicks Um teams that have staffed up in such a way and put, you know, geospatial or statisticians on staff that, you know, this is PhD level stuff. I mean, it's a guy named Justin Jacobs. And when he's not doing basketball, he's doing missile tracking for, for defense agencies. Yes. Yes. Um, It's, it's, you know, there's guys, there's guys I know in baseball who um, baseball teams took them from autonomous driving projects at Carnegie Mellon, because mapping fly balls is kind of the same thing as mapping autonomous drive. Uh, Like that's the level of, Stuff we're talking about, um, mm-hmm. and you need you need to dedicate resources to those specializations. So I think it, you know the generalization was analytics. It's let's use numbers to find undervalued players, right? Moneyball one out, mm-hmm. and that's still kind of you know where I came into it because I had to be generalized. I had just web developments and data science, and data engineering, all the things to make all the stuff run, mm-hmm. which meant I was not inherently great at any one of them. Right? It's you know jack of all trades, Yes. Yeah, I was a technical generalist and still am. But if you bring in a Bayesian statistician with a PhD like the Washington Wizards have, or you bring in someone with you know, missile tracking like other teams have, or you bring in the best front-end developer who could otherwise be working at Google or something, well, that front-end developer is going to build a system that your coaching staff is going to love and want to interact with every day. And that gets into a whole nother organizational psychology bit that we don't have to go down into. But most teams have not made that commitment And this is where I come back to saying, this is information Mm -hmm. because guess what? That web technology, that web platform that a coach or a scout might use also has scouting reports also has, you know, shot charts, aren't really inherently analytics anymore. They're just shot charts, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's there's no model. There's no, there's no PhD level math there. Um, You know what your, your video room is cutting up all the different types of sets other teams run. Let's mash that up with all the other data and understand team's offensive efficiencies based on different sets
3: Mm -hmm.
2: you know that the amount of work able to do that is just being unlocked and i I think the thing the lead that was buried in in moneyball maybe this is a good thing to leave it on the lead that was buried was not like analytics versus scouting Mm -hmm. it was let's run two billion dollar organizations like two billion dollar organizations bingo Mm -hmm. that that's it to me because if you look at other industries it's just the application technology to be more efficient with your resources. And that's all we're talking about here.
1: Enterprise resource management. Yeah, It's, re- it's really what it comes down to, whether you're talking about UI, UX, and how those iPads play into uh, an assistant coach on the sideline, uh, adjusting something based off of those data points. It's how it's packaged. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's again, I- I'm, I'm glad you said that because that's, I always try to, again, This this is kind of, the flag that I've taken up so to speak is that I, I want fan bases to be smarter. I want this fan base to be smarter in, in pre and post game questioning with Chauncey. I always want to ask basketball related questions so that we get something more out of this. And if he wants to call me a nerd, he can call me a nerd. That's fine. I'll I'll throw, I'll throw on my nerd (laughs) glasses. I am a nerd. It's fine. Okay. (laughs) You know, cool uh, but I, I, I'm glad that the Blazers are doing this. I'm glad they're bringing this this part of this in there. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you, you came on here and, and kind of helped explain this. Um, I know you've got other stuff that you do on the side. Uh, and I shouldn't say on the side. it's other stuff that you do beyond this uh, in the analytics spectrum across uh, various sports. So uh, the applications uh, are endless. And yeah. stealing from those different sports... And those different uh, kind of thought processes is always an interesting thing for me to at least go down that road. Uh, but again, I don't want to take any more of your time, man. Thank you very, very much. Uh, let everybody know where they can find you, where, where your work and everything else as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, think, I think it feels like all of uh, rip cities found me on Twitter already. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I mean, that, that has definitely been a, an aspect of it. Um, that's a lot more, frankly, more fun, you know, to, mm-hmm. to interact with, with a fan base, you um, that is as passionate as this one is about their team. Um, hopefully we'll, you know, finish the season with a 70% win rate. Cause it makes my job a lot easier. It Significantly easier
1: to do TV around.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dan Hyatt and Jeff Curtin have been giving me, you know, so much crap. Like, man, we should have made you do this last year. <laughs> Break you in on that team.
1: Oh yeah. man. <laughs> Well, thanks again, man. I really appreciate you. Yeah, Thanks uh, for hopping on with us, man. You can find Corey on Twitter, at JezData. Uh, you can check out his website, and you can see all the other projects and stuff that he's working on there. Uh, and You can catch him uh, during all the Trailblazers broadcasts uh, in your uh, score bug. Popping up in the bottom of the screen. Uh, again, thank you so much for joining us, man. Uh, folks, uh, like, review, subscribe. Help us grow the show. If you're watching it live on YouTube or if you're watching on the replay, please k- click subscribe and help us grow. We continue to blow through everything that we did last year uh, record-wise, and that's all because of you guys. So thank you again. Uh, we will have the back-to-back Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, so we'll probably try to pump, pump in some uh, post-game shows somewhere in there. Uh, and then we'll take a little bit of a break. We'll bring back the mail back on Sunday. Uh, Other than that, uh, you can find us on social media at Danny Morang, at Brandon Sprague, at Jack Ramsey's. Email the show, jackramseys at gmail.com. Until next time, guys, take care.